1: You know what I want. Ah, 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 ah. I
0: want
1: a man. Hello, and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Ro Sampson Folk. And today I'm joined by a friend and a wonderful writer, in my opinion, probably the best writer on the scene in Toronto, Blake Murphy of The Athletic. How are you doing today, man?
2: I'm doing well, man. I uh, walked around the city and my house and didn't run into a single arachnid, so I'm off to uh, off to a pretty good start over here. How <laughs> about you?
1: Uh, oh no, arachnids for you! I there was a tarantula in my house yesterday. How serendipitous of you to ask! That's crazy. <laughs> um
2: that's wild what what did you do
1: well it was in the laundry room and as good a person as i want to be i want to say i took it in stride and just said i guess it gets to live and i do feel bad but it did die yesterday and i don't that's it makes me the worst person i know yeah i know but it's a scary thing. I'm from Canada. I don't have much experience with <laughs> tarantulas. So this massive hairy spider sharing my living quarters was not cool with me. I it makes me a worse person, but I, I have to be honest.
2: I don't want to the... get like too specific here, I guess, but like I'm curious. A tarantula's a pretty big spider. What did you like you couldn't just like step on it, right? You would have had to get some weaponry.
1: Well, see, this is why it's so interesting. I have a a slide, you know, like a sandal that I reserve for cockroaches. And cockroaches are a pretty good foe as well. I'm not a big fan of those either. And I thought maybe that that would be the way to go. But I had to flush it out because it was hiding. And so what I ended up using was, and this is going to sound pretty bad, but I brought it and ran it into a corner and then I lined up a decently sized rock with the corner oh, and no. drop the rock straight down. And that actually worked pretty well. <laughs> so that was that was how I did it.
2: Man, you're uh for a guy who puts on a nice front, you're uh
1: you're evil a little evil inside. Are we sure I put on a nice front? I think so. Oh. Okay, well at least I know. You seem that, like that's a nice boy. T- a <laughs> nice boy. Okay. <laughs> The first question I have for you that isn't related to tarantulas or arachnids or how your day has been. From your fantastic Terrence Davis piece, which, listener, I urge you to go read it on The Athletic. There's a quote that I thought was pretty great in there. We used to tell him all the time, son, the word of God is that so man think it, so he is. So if you think it, the sky's the limit, said Davis Sr., Terrence Davis's father. You've spent a lot of time covering guys like Norman Powell, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet. What part do you think self-belief plays in their success and progression? Because it's a big story of theirs. And is their version of self-belief so much different than their contemporary contemporaries who have never broken through in that way?
2: Yeah, I don't, I mean, obviously I can't compare to guys who didn't make it or I haven't talked to or whatever, but I think it's a huge component of it. And I think honestly, this is this is going to get more um, like analytical than I think you probably expected. But um, there are some fields of research like at draft time um, about how certain personality types fit in different environments. And, and when I was in when I was in school, like I got a business degree before I started writing and my focus was mostly in organizational behavior. And it was always something I was super interested in how, you know, if you if you were going to start out, if you're Norman Powell and you were a bench guy for two years at UCLA and then became the man for two years, and you're going to get dropped in and have to be on the bench on a 50-win team, and you might get asked to go to the G League, you know, different personality types are going to respond to that situation differently. Different personality types are going to respond differently to uh, the responsibility of being dropped into a terrible franchise as the number one pick. Um, so I think that that's, that's really interesting, and I think it's pretty telling that the Raptors, during this Six-year stretch where they haven't had a ton of pick equity, uh, and they haven't had you know they haven't had the marquee marquee guys to to bring in via the draft. They've valued players with that same kind of mentality and that same kind of makeup. And I think what that tells you is that um, maybe not empirically, but the Raptors very much believe, and it's been successful anecdotally, that those type of players are the type of players who can succeed in a winning environment when maybe they're not contributing to winning right away. And I think that that makes sense if you think about, um, you know, times in your own life that you've you've had to rely on perseverance. Whenever you look back and you've accomplished something, you know, like that perseverance was such a huge part of it. And I think the day-to-day grind of the NBA and the year-to-year grind of the NBA kind of weeds out the people who can't stick to that or, or just don't have that because, you know, there are probably, you know, Davis hasn't really got there yet. He did through not getting a G League... Uh, combine invite and not getting drafted but you hit lows and i feel like it's really really important um as you're building up that when you hit those lows uh you don't believe that that's a failure of self you really have to believe that that's just a momentary low and it's building towards something else um and i think that you know in a situation like this where all of those guys that have been success stories for the Raptors have been out of the rotation at some point, have been down in the G league at some point, and then have been called on out of nowhere at some point. I think that's a huge personality trait for how you know these guys in particular and then young guys in general can fit into winning environments.
1: Besides, are we talking like Myers- Briggs personality tests or do you have any more info on that? What are they measuring with?
2: Yeah, it's not it's not that um, the person that I'm thinking of, I don't have their Twitter handle, in mind right now, um, but it was like there was a specialist who, you know, focused, it, the focus was pretty much on athletes specifically. So I don't know if there was, um, I don't know if it applied out, out of sample, like out of athlete sample, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't Myers Briggs, but it was something like that. It was, you know, you measure players on these tests on a couple different um, traits and a couple different scales and, and kind of create a profile from there. Yeah. But well, it wasn't that's... like, a, it wasn't like some four letter thing or, You know, whatever the there was a new there's a newer one, too. That's like a five factor one that five thirty eight had linked to a while back. And that one's supposed to be more like scientifically um, not accurate because I guess they're all just estimates of stuff we can't measure. But they're more it's more consistent, like year to year. If you were to check in on yourself every so often, um, they're more predictive of future personality traits. Um, There are some pretty good ones that hold up over time.
1: It's so the Raptors aren't drafting like the diplomat or the debater or anything like that. Yeah.
2: Or yeah, whatever the four letter things are. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't even know for sure that the Raptors use a service like that. It might just be the way they interview guys and the things they look for when they're doing back. Like they do deep, deep background on guys before they're going to pick them. Um, and like Davis is a guy they've been following for a long time. Um, O'Shea Brissett's another one that like kind of checks some of the off court boxes and they followed a while. um, But yeah, so I don't I don't know if they even do it or it's just it's definitely something that some NBA teams do. The Raptors could just, you know, interview really well and and seek out those guys through their background and stuff.
1: Yeah, well, I think they probably would, because to me, it seems like there's a lot of overlap with the Raptors and finding guys who, like you said, deciding if you're the man and then being dropped into like this 50 win team like Norm Powell with UCLA, then the Raptors being humbled, let's say, going to the G League. Things like that happen. And the types of guys who are able to have the confidence of self, but that confidence of self doesn't inflate them to thinking they're deserving of something on the team, just that they deserve to be on the team and serve a role. You know what yeah. I mean? It's really- Yeah,
2: well, There's a there was another quote that um, Terrence Davis Sr. gave me, which was like, he, he was kind of talking about how he always tried to instill in Terrence Jr., um, the difference between confidence and arrogance and, and how that's a thin line and you always have to be confident, but you can't be confident to the point of arrogant. Um, I don't know if that quote actually made the final copy of the story or not. Terence's dad was awesome. His Both of his parents are just like the
1: sweetest people. Um, anyway, that's that's not to your point, but <laughs> no, that makes sense. What was the process like trying to reach out to them? Was that difficult or were they easily available for that? No, um, it was pretty like honestly
2: I don't know like how much of this I should share but like
1: oh, Terrence, well, I don't want Terrence to force the, you No,
2: anymore. it's fine. I it just like I'm sure it's nothing. It just like Terence was the most helpful player I've ever interviewed. Um, like I sat down with him for a while and like at the end I was like cuz I had I had seen um, or some of the research that I'd done based on like his of his family situation and stuff like that um, from other people's articles he said was inaccurate. Uh, so I just kind of asked, like, if he'd mind if I talked to his parents and he hooked me up and helped me, like, get the phone numbers for, like, all his high school coaches and college coaches and stuff like that. And it that's was, cool. He, it yeah, was very that is helpful. cool.
1: Yeah. Well, how do you do you find players when you're interviewing like them, them like that? You said he was the most helpful ever. Like, how different is that to have a player give you the numbers and even to dive in a deep a little bit deeper just from your perspective? When you start writing a feature like that about somebody, is this is that common or usually do you have to establish like a lot of trust through a lot of talk earlier on the day to day, the practices, things like that. And then say, do you mind if I talk to somebody close to you? Like I remember your Jordan Lloyd feature from last year that was really in depth and had quotes from a lot of places. Like how how difficult do you find that process?
2: Um, honestly, I don't have a ton of experience doing those, right? Like I, I I haven't written very many of the, like I've done feature stuff on guys like the O'Shea thing I had last week that I just pulled together from one interview and stuff like that. Um, but I've never, I haven't been really gone this deep all that often in terms of like the getting numbers thing. I had never even thought to ask before, but it's just like kind of where my conversation with him went. And then when it came up, we had like, we were in the process of, it was the first time I'd, or second time I'd ever talked to him, I think. Um, And it was just like the rapport was building up well uh, where I felt comfortable doing that. And he felt comfortable. Um, But, yeah, it's not something I've done. I've done super often.
1: Interesting. Um, getting Getting more into his play style then, because if you are wondering, listener, about his journey to the league, Blake's piece is really good at shelling that out and getting that out. But are there any benchmarks you're certain he'll hit in the NBA or G League? And who's his closest comparison in the league?
2: Oh, man, I don't like player comparisons. Um, uh, so, I mean, the thing with him is, and this has been, I feel like I haven't done the best job of communicating the what I mean by this. Like, it seems almost like an insult, but I mean it as a very big compliment for a rookie player coming into a winning situation. He has a lot of complimentary skills and a lot of, like, a lot of skills that uh, work in a secondary role. And what I mean by that is, like, he's not a good enough lead ball handler yet to run a unit effectively as point guard, but if he's your second ball handler or third ball handler on the floor, you're in pretty good shape because he can run those weaves. He can run a pick and roll. He can keep the um, the offense flowing and, and make those passes. Um, you know, he's not an elite shooter, but he can knock them down and he'll shoot them willingly. He's not an elite uh, perimeter defender. And Nick Nurse has talked about how he needs to get a little more consistent with that, but he can guard guys and he can, with his length, He can probably guard three positions in a pinch. He's probably more of a 2-1 defender right now, but like maybe some threes in a pinch. Um, So he just does a lot of those smaller things well that make his he's his skill sets like kind of plug and play like it wouldn't really matter what lineup he's out there with. Uh, He should be able to fit a role. And that's like a lot of times guys come in with one really established skill and they're trying to build up the rest of the stuff. And he's kind of like you know, Jack of all, Jack of all trades, master of none to like steal a cliche phrase. Um, and I think that that that's what kind of made me optimistic about him. I think he could just fit in like they're going to start Fred Van Vliet or Norman Powell at the two most of the time. But like strictly in terms of lineup construction, you could drop Davis in there and I think it would be fine. Um, you could drop him into a bench unit that has um, Van Vliet and a Baca, And I think he'd work well with that. You could picture him in some of the Lowry and bench units if that's how the rotations end up getting staggered. Um I just think he fits a couple ways like that. He has uh, and and then the counter to that obviously is that you know having that kind of balance of skills but no elite skill it shows that there's room to improve and that he might benefit from some, you know, 905 time to really sharpen some of those and turn them into high-end weapons instead of, you know,
1: average weapons. Was there anything he was hopeful of when you were speaking to him about his game? Um not necessarily.
2: He's I mean like like those other guys he's kind of you know, whatever role he gets thrown into, like when they, when he got into camp um, or even pre-camp, really, they were trying to play him at point guard a lot because they wanted to see if he could pick it up quickly enough that he could be the third point guard this year. Um, Obviously it doesn't look like they're going to carry one of those. So um, that would have been helpful. And he was eager to do that. And then I think you saw in the last preseason game, they shifted him back to his natural role and he was pretty excited to do that. Um, And he said today he's a little more comfortable in that one. Um, I didn't talk to him about the G league really uh, I talked to Norm a little bit about if, if the young guys ask him about the G League and stuff. And um, I mean, I think that's something that those guys are at this point in the the Raptors culture. You know, I think those guys would be eager to do that kind of stuff, too, and go down and work on work on things. Uh, but no, in terms of like one thing, he's like, yo, I'm going to show this or I'm going to knock down 40 percent of my threes or whatever. There's nothing like that, really. Mm. But we honestly, we mostly talked about like personal. stuff. we didn't talk a ton about his game.
1: Yeah. Well, for that piece, that makes sense. You spoke yeah. about the the third point guard situation. Is there? Do you foresee how the like? Do you have an expectation of how the Raptors are going to handle that position going forward? And does that match what you think will have the most, let's say, collinearity with with success going forward?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I thought keeping. So the news came down before we we uh, recorded that they waived Isaiah Taylor, which, barring some late change will mean that Malcolm Miller has made the roster despite the positional imbalance. I think that's the right choice. I think Miller's in this weird spot where he was competing for the 15th role and now suddenly is competing for like eight, nine, 10 in the rotation um, because some of the other guys have been disappointing and he's like a middle ground between the guys who can't defend and the guys who can't shoot. And he can do a little bit of both. Um, anyway, so in terms of the three point guards, no, they only have Lowry and Van Bleet. And part of why I'm in favor of Powell starting more often is just not that you can't rotate two point guards that are starting together and stagger them all the time. Um, it's just a little tougher that way. And if one or both get in foul trouble or get hurt or something like that, um, it's a little tougher, but I think right now you look at it and, um, they believe McCaw can play some point guard. I don't really love them there, um, but they think he's capable there davis has shown he can he can do it a little bit he's going to be turnover prone probably um and then i think the you know the thing that they're relying on a little bit more is that between lowry van vliet siakam and gasol you have a lot of guys who are playmakers and if say lowry and van vliet can't be on the floor for whatever reason well you can run a little offense through gasol or you can put the ball in siakam's hands and as long as whoever's at two three uh, have some shooting to their game, you know, you can run with him as the kind of de facto point guard. So I think they're going to piece it together that way. I think the hope right now is that Isaiah Taylor, once he clears waivers, agrees to sign a two-way deal as well. And then you can have 45 days of a third string point guard from Isaiah Taylor too. Um, he might have too good of offers overseas or might want to just stay in the G league so he can get that full-time call up or something like that. But I think that's probably the hope right now. And if not him, Uh, Maybe another point guard falls into that two-way spot.
1: Speaking of mixing it up, where you're talking about getting offense from guys like Gasol in a pinch or Siakam, providing the passing that you might expect or playmaking you might expect from a lead guard, the Raptors aren't employing that third guard. They're probably going to have to switch up a couple things this year as far as lineups go, and Nurse will get creative, I'm sure. Is there any one lineup that you're specifically looking forward to this year that intrigues you?
2: Yeah, I mean, we got a glimpse at it on Friday. I love the idea of OG, Siakam, Abaka, and Gasol together. Um, I don't know that it's actually going to be good outside of specific matchups. Like, I think if they nail down the zone defense and they rebound super well, like, it can probably get by and might might be a plus just because that's five of your six best players on the floor. Um, I think it's also just, like, kind of funny to be that huge, like... OG could be a power forward, really, and Siakam could technically, like, could probably be a center, and you're playing those guys at 2-3. It's funny. I like weird lineups. Um, I don't think they have a ton of, like, super interesting small ball lineups this year. Um, I kind of want to see, like, garbage time lineups. Well, I mean, this is going to happen now. They won't have a point guard on the floor in garbage time. Beforehand, I had been thinking of, like, weirdo lineups that were just, like, five wings or, like... You know, Chris Boucher at the three with Abaka and Gasol. There's just like their roster by traditional position definitions is laid out so weirdly that I think they're gonna play a lot of funky, weird lineups. It's gonna be it'd be kind of fun. It might be frustrating sometimes though.
1: I'm yeah, I'm sure there will be points of frustration along the year, especially if you're only carrying two point guards and that third point guard is usually a guy who just moves the chains. And like you're alluding to earlier, Malcolm Miller competing for the fifteenth, then the eighth and ninth, the Raptors opted for Maybe the potential of the eighth, ninth guy who's a wing, it's stacked at a position that they don't have a need instead of going with the the third guard who just kind of moves the chains on offense and doesn't really do anything. You, I'm interested, you talked about that huge lineup, Siakam, Ananobi, Gasol, and Ibaka. Who do you think of that lineup really unlocks the potential offensively?
2: Yeah, I think... You know, you need OG to continue to show the steps that he's shown in the preseason so far for that to be workable. And that's not just knocking down threes. That's the little bit of extra putting the ball on the floor and working as a cutter and stuff. Um, I thought it was interesting when Nurse has talked about the Gasol-Abaka pairing. I think they see Gasol as the four on offense. Just because, like, Abaka has kind of become like an elite offensive center in that role and his like where his three point shooting came down last year and he's not quite the passer gasol is it makes more sense functionally for gasol to be the four even though he's gigantic um so you can invert some things that way like if gasol was sharing some of the playmaking with siakam you could have og work kind of in an inverted role where he's maybe more of an interior guy um but it's his skill set that'll unlock a little bit more of that and obviously the reliability of his three point shooting cuz that lineup has Guys who can knock down shots, but outside of Lowry, has no one that I think a defense would be like super worried about getting open shots, and that could cramp things up. So um, if OG can knock those down and then put the ball in the, a little bit on the floor, so that you have a couple guys out there, um, that might work. I also, you know, it's a fun lineup that they they used and nurses talked up. I don't know that you're going to see it a ton when the games actually matter and the rotation expands. I think he's just trying. Different combinations of those top seven guys right now. So he's aware of, you know, what's a closing option? What's a starting option in a pinch? How do I get the most out of those seven guys kind of thing? Do
1: you have strong takeaways from OG Ananobi's preseason? Anything you liked or disliked?
2: Oh, yeah. I liked all of it. I thought, honestly, I thought he had a really good preseason. Um, You know, the first couple games maybe looked a little shaky because they were giving him so much extra responsibility and so much extra leash to make mistakes. Um, with the ball in his hands and playing almost like a pseudo Siakam role with some of those bench units and stuff. I think that's important. I think that's what you do in the summer. I think that's what you do in preseason. And I think how he looked in contrast on Friday when they shrunk his role back and suddenly he's playing with really good players. He looked amazing. I think he had, what, 16 or 18 points. He hit four threes, um, you know, some smart cuts, some smart passes. I thought he looked really good. Um, He's been their best defender of anyone and then the the one encouraging thing, too, for him, and obviously we need a much, much bigger sample to, to call it a real change, but he's rebounded pretty well, and that's always been a weaker part of his game for a guy his size. So um, obviously he's got to show a lot of this in games that matter still, and because his usage will probably be a little lower, there might be some inconsistencies there. But I think he's back to looking like what we thought he would look like coming out of that really strong rookie season.
1: You talked about Terrence Davis, the... Jack of all trades, master of none. OG Ananobi kind of had that quality. If you disregard, there are some elite aspects to his defense. But on offense, he was in the same position as Davis when he came to the league. It was like he could dribble a little bit. He could shoot a little bit. And we're all waiting for that next step. What do you think comes first? A dribble package of any sort for OG or the three-point shot and maybe even the pull-up more importantly?
2: Yeah, I think the three-point shot's a little further along right now. Uh, If you look, his release looks a little quicker and a little tighter this year. Um, Not that it was bad before, but like when his shot in college did not look aesthetically like a shot you could project to the NBA three-point line. And they didn't overhaul that too much right away, but um, they have slowly over time made that a little more compact. Um, And I think it looks really good. I think, you know, the bulk of his three-point shots are probably going to be open ones in the corner or not, maybe not wide open, but, you know, kick out looks in the corner or trailer ones on the wing. Uh, and he has to look confident in those. I don't know that he's probably a little away from needing the pull up as part of his game. Really, um, he'll run maybe a little bit of pick and roll. And he was in some of those pitch packages uh, the other night where, you know, you you operate a DHO, take one hard dribble and then swing it to the next guy coming over or whatever. Uh, but I don't think they're going to need him to, to pull it up too much. Um, Yeah, I think I think the three probably comes along. He also shot really well as a rookie. Um, Not that that was an enormous sample or anything, but the dribble game, I think it'll it'll peak out and it'll be fun because he does try some of those Siakam spins and he is a sharp cutter and things like that. But I think, uh, you know, the handle's still a little loose and maybe a little turnover prone to give him that uh, in a big role when the games actually matter.
1: When you when you watch a Siakam spin and an OG spin, do you find them comparable?
2: I do because I think that like Siakam developed that spin so well and guys on the team probably noticed and in terms of like the footwork, I think the teaching elements were probably the same, but Siakam is all like quirky and keep the ball at weird angles and you there's no way you're going to block this and I'll just put it in off of weird angles and weird banks and stuff, whereas OG is like more Tasmanian devil, where it's like I'm spinning. My plant, my p- plant foot is planted so hard that it looks like my whole body is spinning and my leg standing still. Uh, and then I'm just gonna bowl through you and hope I'm at the rim or that you foul me. And he drew a lot of fouls on that on that yeah. in the preseason uh, and the open scrimmage. So um, I think probably the training and development behind it is similar, but because of the different body types and because Siakam's kind of quirky finishing is well ahead. Uh, you know, it's more, it's a more of a finesse spin versus a power spin.
1: Right. Well, yeah, with Siakam, it's definitely, it's the feel of it. You know, he feels the whole spin spinning off of the guy. Like he makes his first contact with the defender with his forearm or his shoulder and he's kind of spinning around. He feels where the defender is on him the whole way before he goes up and finds his angle to finish at the rim. Whereas OG is just kind of this brute force. He starts the spin it doesn't really matter where the guy is defending him on his body. Like, he's going to spin on that possession. And a lot of the times he's making his first contact with his back against the other guy. And like we saw with Markinen, he just got plowed to the ground. And that's, you know, that's good enough offense if he can control that type of, I guess, brute strength when he's going downhill like that. And in that game, he he definitely could. There was another quote, um, this one from Norm Powell, from your Terrence Davis piece. This team is built by workers. Do you think that that was the core ethic behind the championship run?
2: Yeah, if I mean, yeah, there's I feel like Kawhi fit that ethos, but I feel like that was also like to call that a championship run exclusively is maybe a little unfair to the guys who were there before. Like that was also like the defining characteristic of DeMar DeRozan and his career as well. Um, And Dwayne Casey helped start to put that culture in place. Um. So I don't think it's exclusive to the championship year. I think a championship galvanizes something like that and emboldens it. And you know, now if someone comes in while well, the Raptors, you know, tap the ring on the table, if a guy's not working, you you heard Nick Nurse's comments this week calling guys out for for not meeting the team's expected level of um, defensive intensity and hard work. So uh, I think they they've known for a while that that's what they look for in you know, in their depth pieces and in building a culture. And now that they have a championship from doing that and the whole, oh, they had no lottery picks. Oh, everyone was, you know, built on on their own or, or through the development system. And everyone on that team had some element of like chip on their shoulder or whatever. I think that, you know, they know that that builds a a winning culture and a sustainable culture. And I, I don't think, you know, I don't know how many wins that counts for in the regular season, but I think it's going to remain uh, a priority for them. In terms of uh, the culture building side,
1: yeah, I think that's why I asked. It's so interesting to me because it was a Dwayne Casey ism, and it was Demar Derozan's thing, and the no lottery picks thing was a thing. But they also traded for you know MV at players who were at one point MVP candidates and Defensive Player of the Years, and so and, trade, and th-
2: traded two lottery picks in that trade in Demar and right.
1: So and the other people like Dwayne Casey, DeMar DeRozan who have had that ethos haven't had that success. So that's why I'm I was interested to like to hear what you thought of that. And it does remain a very interesting thing to me like because it will be for the Raptors for the foreseeable future the tagline and we'll see if it translates to more success outside of having the talent that the Raptors had last year. It's
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean the honest thing is is that first of all like the hard work isn't going to be enough. The league is too talented. Um, Also, most guys to get to that level, or uh, at least once they get to that, like most of those guys in the NBA work hard and have to work some semblance apart. Obviously, the Raptors take it to another level, but they also had some talent. And, you know, it's one of those things where, had they not won, had they been bounced in the second round last year uh, and this offseason looked a little different, like, you know, then you're talking about a team that's, Built by hard work and it's all workers and, you know, they're getting the whole, well, you're on the treadmill kind of stuff. So the championship changes things, but I don't think it should be like looked at as like, oh, that was the winning formula is just hard work. Because there are a lot of teams out there hard working hard. And then, you know, it also undersells how talented the Raptors were and things like that as well.
1: It, It undersells Kyle Lowry's unironic galaxy brain as well. Yes. I think that's that is the ethic of the of the Raptors championship run outside of I mean, Kawhi Leonard,
2: and, and like you're you're like half joking about the galaxy brand thing, but I think a part of what they're relying on with these seven guys, the seven key rotation guys who are back, is like yeah they're not you know they don't have the high end of Kawhi and they're gonna miss Danny Green and none of the undercard guys have really popped, but of the seven guys who are coming back, I think you'd call at least five and probably six of them, maybe all seven to some degree, high IQ players. Most of them can pass. All of them can defend to some degree. So you have guys who kind of fit the, well, now not only is there this institutional knowledge and this experience from the playoff run, but you have smart guys who are playing together for a second, third, fourth year in a row. uh, And I think they're, they're banking on, you know, some value from that as well.
1: Yeah, well, maybe that's why that we're workers thing fits the mold of this regular season so well and also can be retrofitted to the championship run because there is that quality of there's so many high IQ players on the floor that if we just have hard workers next to them, like Nick Nurse said in that quote where he was talking about Ronda Hollis Jefferson and Stanley Johnson not being up to par defensively, on the other end, he knew their chances would come, which is probably true if you're playing with guys like Gasol, Lowry, players who are that good at creating for other players. So it's I think it works to just stick to the hard-working mantra And let the talent and the IQ of players like Gasol, Lowry, Siakam, whoever's creating out there, do the rest and create for the hard workers. So it should be interesting. And maybe one last question for you before we get to the Twitter questions based off of that. You are playing next to a player on the Raptors. We'll be playing next to a lot of high IQ players. Who do you think benefits the most in their minutes with Lowry? Huh.
2: That's an interesting one. I'm yeah. going to say this is like a deeper one. So I don't think, you know, I don't think it'll come up a ton, but in watching them play together just for a couple of minutes the other night, I think Chris Boucher's best, best path to playing a meaningful role, even in small bench minutes, is with Lowry and Bench units. Like if you think back to how Bebe would look in those, or like any literally any center they threw at the Lowry and Bench units. I think he's just so smart at putting guys in positions to succeed and Boucher's game is at the exact point where like the talent is obvious but finding the right positions to succeed and finding the right timing for that is the next challenge for him and Lowry can help with that a lot and that's going to apply to a lot of young players anyway uh, but especially a young big so um, I think I think you'll see what you've seen for five six years now in that Most everyone's on-off numbers will be a little better with Lowry. Uh, Everyone will shoot better off of threes assisted by Lowry again like they always have. Uh, But yeah, Boucher is the one guy that I find interesting in terms of, you know, what his weaknesses are right now or limitations maybe is a better word. Uh, And Lowry being a guy who can help him, you know, thrive around those or, or maximize those.
1: If Boucher can shoot the same percentage, like have a steady percentage from downtown and work the short roll as well as Nagara did, then he'll be in the league till he's like 34.
2: Yeah, I don't know about that. Boucher's not a bad passer, <laughs> but no one is a short roll passer like Bebe is a short roll passer. Bebe even passed like that, like he was in the short roll on the long roll. Like he would catch a lob and kick it out to a corner. Like, yeah, there's, there's no comparison for for Bebe with that. Um, also, the one thing... I know there's some Boucher excitement and a lot of fantasy people have asked me about him. The three looks decent and he he'll shoot it a lot. He doesn't really have a track record of it going in at a high percentage. So maybe just keep that in mind until we see it, you know, with a larger sample. Like, I think he only shot like 30 percent in the G League last year.
1: Yeah, I am a noted Boucher pessimist and Uh to the chagrin of some. But of Lewis? (laughs) Yeah, Lewis. That was when we were talking about his piece, too. I was like, well, you know, this I thought it was extremely well written. But I don't see the upside like he does, so that's it, van Vliet and Boucher is the the talking point for Lewis and I so that's, why are uh, you
2: higher on van Vliet than he is or lower no
1: he's so high on van Vliet. I'm okay. a, i van Vliet, I love his game and i i don't i see him in the three and d mold you know what i you know what I mean like I don't see starting guard I don't see lead guard just because he did good in the preseason I wrote about this in my yeah, he was really the black box report, I, I wrote about it, how he kept widening the angles for his passes on the pick and roll, and he spent more time on ball, and that was really good, and that created more opportunities. But he didn't do a lot of that last year, so that made his pick and roll viability not so great, which is obviously super important for a lead guard. But I need to see that in the regular season to kind of expect him to project as that. But I think that's fair, as well that. as the finishing. Yeah.
2: Can't so. be a 54% finisher at the rim.
1: That, yeah, that, and yeah, so it's, it's, that's the point of contention with Lewis and I. Everything else we seem to agree on, but Boucher and Van Vliet, point of contention.
2: Well, the nice (laughs) thing about, the nice thing about Van Vliet is that, you know, we have, and, and this is like a cop out answer when I get asked about like what'll happen in free agency with him, but like this is a whole year to find out. He's not extension eligible. You get to see him, whether he starts at the two or comes off the bench or what, um, you know, you can bump those minutes up to 30 minutes a game, see what he can give you in a bigger role, shifts more of the, you know, like when him and Lowry play together, if you want to shift more of that to Van Bleet being the de facto one on offense and Lowry being off ball, you can do that and see. That's kind of the whole point of this year is be good, but within being good, see, you know, who is going to be able to give
1: you what in 2021. He's 2011 Trevor Ariza as a point guard, except shoots better. That's, that's what I see. You know what I mean? Like a 3 and D guy.
2: Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that 3 is nice. <laughs>
1: it, oh, it's so nice. Most
2: 3 and D guys can't pass like that, though.
1: But, but he is already a point guard. So like the limitations of yeah. his defending, that, that's what I mean.
2: Yeah, I got (laughs) you. It is it is a little interesting that like and again, I thought he had a pretty he had a pretty strong preseason operating the pick and roll. But I've always found it a little interesting that like he always looks like such a smart and savvy passer the rest of the time. And then it's just in pick and roll where I felt like his playmaking has been a little behind historically. Um, I don't know. I'm that might come along, though, man. Yeah, that's that's what
1: I was thinking. That's why I'm waiting for that. He's he's a nifty baseline passer. I find he yeah. does a lot of really good work along there.
2: Yeah. And he nashes the pick and roll really well. But I think sometimes he just dribbles out too much of the clock doing that.
1: Well, it's it depends if he's gnashing it to get the switch like the one that Rubio yeah. and Gasol were always getting at the World Cup. Or if he's just resetting the offense back right. out because <laughs> he did he did that a lot last year. He was like, all right here we go, let's run it again, man. And it was like, yeah. damn, there's 11 seconds on the clock. but
2: And that's, that's yeah. an interesting thing too, and I talked to him about it a little bit in preseason, is like last year, I think, I can't remember if he had the highest portion or just like one of the highest portions of his field goal attempts that came late in the clock. And like there's an element of he ran bench units that weren't very good offensively and a lot of the time was asked to bail them out. But also there's an element of like, maybe you didn't run the possessions that well. And that's why. Um, So there's like some chicken or the egg with that number. And obviously late clock heaves, you're going to shoot worse on. So I wonder if he can clean that up or
1: if the bench units are just a little more functional,
2: does his field goal percentage just come up a little naturally anyway? And
1: it depends on his proximity to Lowry as well. I think yes. like you, like you alluded to earlier on, there is magic dust that is sprinkled on everybody who plays with Lowry with their shots going in and playing better defense and offense. It's, he, he There's an effervescence about Kyle Lowry that just makes people win, which is the ethic of the Raptors. You ready for Twitter, <laughs> the Twitter questions? Wow. Down? Yeah,
2: yeah. Let's do
1: it. <laughs> Blake, I gotta ask you. I haven't been getting as many Twitter questions responses as I've wanted lately. Do you have any advice how to engage the Twitter folk? Is there wow. anything provocative I can say in my tweets to engage more? <laughs> questions
2: no um and honestly i didn't retweet it because like the last time i did that for like one of mine and wills or whatever we had like 50 questions and it was just way too overwhelming to work through um not to make you feel bad about your lack of questions but um i think there's i think you're better to be on the short side and be able to fill the podcast with whatever you want to talk about than to have way too many questions and then people feel bad for their questions not getting asked or it takes forever to sort through them all yeah, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh,
1: it's a work in progress. The first question from a colleague of mine, Matt Schantz, who is also probably in the Blake Murphy blogging tree, I assume. Will Blake be drawing a duck in his game notes this season? And has he been practicing?
2: Uh, that is not currently the plan. Uh, for one, I think that Boucher probably figures to like. So when I did the Moose one last year, the whole point was that Greg Monroe was never supposed to play. And then Jv got hurt for like six weeks. Uh, so that was a disaster of planning on my part. Uh, I think Boucher will play too much. I don't really want to do that again. Um, yeah, I also, you know, I have enough bad tattoos. I don't need a duck tattooed on me now, too, to go with the Moose.
1: So anything you draw is tattooed on your body. Your illustrations. they I mean, if they win the
2: championship <laughs> again.
1: Well, what do you think the odds of that
2: are? Uh, looks, they're slim, but they're enough that I don't want to start committing (laughs) to drawing things now that I know later someone will be like, why don't you get that tattooed? And I'll be like, "Okay, I'm an idiot. Yeah, Uh, no, no plans to draw anything right now. We'll we'll see. We kicked around last year at one point. I kicked around with someone the idea of Macaw getting a drawing and I draw a little bird. Um, I don't think that I think he's probably going to play too often. For that as well. I might, I don't know, I'll see what comes up with uh, the end of bench guys and see if I can see if there's anything there.
1: As far as consistency with that, the drawing, the illustration part of it all, you seemed pretty consistent with that. Did you truly tweet out a, the picture of Moose every time you drew it during the game?
2: Uh, so I think there was. There was one game I definitely didn't, and I realized after the game that I forgot, and I blamed it on something else. I remember tweeting, no moose drawing today for whatever reason. I just made something up. I just totally forgot to draw it. Um, and then in the playoffs when they ran into him, um, I did it most games, but I think there was one game it was like too, like I just didn't have time. Like there's too much going on in a playoff game, and I didn't want to miss possessions drawing it. What
1: but do you I think? Th- I
2: would I would say like 90, 90 to 95% of his appearances
1: that's that's pretty high what do you think it says on a metaphysical level that you have a tattoo from the championship season of a player that didn't even finish the season with the team what does that mean
2: i don't i think it was more that like it doesn't really have much to do with him it was just like something that became like a bit of a funny running thing during the year and it was just a way to because like it's not like I can get the Larry b or a raptors logo tattooed on me or whatever it's just I don't know it also like I stupidly said I would do it early in the playoffs <laughs> so um it was like yeah if they win the championship sure I'll do it uh I don't know I think it's more like representative of the season at a personal level for me just something like goofy to remember it by
1: hmm. is the season goofy for you in a, on a personal level? No,
2: just, just the moose is goofy.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm digging for something deeper. I'm trying to probe for, for an answer that you would never give. The next Twitter question from Ryan Robinson. Your work has been compared to War and Peace. Have you read War and Peace? Please analyze the similarities and differences. Blake Tolstoy, what do you say?
2: Oh, my goodness.
1: Oh, yeah, i thought we were taking real
2: questions <laughs> um oh,
1: that's a real no
2: i have not read War and peace uh if i was one of those people though that changed my twitter name to funny puns all the time my name right now would definitely be warren like w-a-r-r-e-n peace so i'm I going think, by now
1: yeah that one i think is done quite often i would oh, yeah. assume
2: yeah Even but th- those people didn't have jack armstrong call them that on the broadcast so
1: is that what did he compare it to leo tolstoy like war and peace
2: yeah him and him and matt were talking about the piece on air and like they were saying nice things but then they went off and do like a tangent of roasting me for a little bit oh. where jack was like man he loves to write and Devlin was like yeah it took me a couple days to read and then oh it's like war
1: and peace oh i only saw like the 30 second clip where jack just said like that your piece was great. I didn't hear the rest of it. That is so illuminating. Okay. Yeah, you are so- like Tolstoy then. Now that I think of it, definitely. War and Peace, that's, that's your pseudonym yeah. going forward. Sure. All right. Third question from Greg Wright. FEV has looked great in the preseason, and Nurse has also been praising his performance in cap. camp. Sorry. What type of statistical production do you expect from him this year? And what type of deal do you think he will command on the open market this offseason?
2: Yeah, so the deal thing, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier, where, like, I almost feel like I have to cop out because, you know, this this year is going to determine so much. Like, this is such a huge, he averaged 28 minutes a game last year in 64 games. But, like, that's going to be up over 30 this year and hopefully around 70 games. Um, If I were to guess right now, like, this is unfortunate, but, like, you look at the few teams that do have cap space next summer and where they are in terms of age and progression and where they might have a need. And then you look at the Raptors desire to maintain 2021 flexibility. Um, You know, I could see there being an incongruence there between what Van Bleed like, I would think Van Bleed is entering that market, like hoping for 20 million. And I think the Raptors are probably, you know, have maybe 12 to 15 in mind. Like his cap hold is going to be just shy of 18. And like that's probably a reasonable expectation for him. Like it's going to be tough. Like no one, there are only four teams that project to have cap space. So like they, the Raptors, obviously, as a, you know, you want players to get paid, you want guys to get their money. Um, But there might, You know, if if those four teams spend their cap space elsewhere, or decide that Van Vliet's not a starter, um, then maybe it gets cheap. But I don't know, man, I think I think you really got to see what he looks like right now. I think I would guess right now that like, you know, the Raptors have something in the 12 to 14 range in their head and he has something in the 20 range in his head. And we're going to see over the course of this year whether the Raptors number comes up to his or his goes down to theirs or, uh, you know, if there's still that that gap. A quick. By the way, I'm just us- making those numbers up, like to roughly illustrate the situation. I'm not reporting that. That's what the, <laughs> the size. Van Bleet's not extension eligible, so um, those numbers wouldn't really matter anyway. But
1: that was a true Zach Lowe moment. Oh, that, like
2: to, to be clear, I'm not reporting. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's uh, exactly it. In terms of the numbers, he averaged 11 points and 4.8 assists last year. Um, I'm gonna say like 14 points and six assists. I know that's not a huge jump, but like, I also didn't realize he averaged 28 minutes last year. Maybe I'll say 15 points and six assists. I think he's going to hit a ton of threes this year.
1: I think so, too. You ha- your hesitancy to do player comparisons is the same hesitancy I have to project numbers. I hate projecting numbers, but yeah, uh, yeah interesting. I think he yeah, will hit just- a ton of threes.
2: Yeah, and like he he finished so poorly on twos last year that if like some of the stuff we talked about with his pick and roll work or finishing at the rim, if that comes up, then maybe maybe he's in business a little bit. But he still like projects as a low free throw guy and a guy who you know his his point production is going to be largely determined by how many threes he gets off. So yeah, I'll say fifteen and six. I don't know that might be modest. I'm not sure.
1: I think fifteen and six would be a really good year for him.
2: Yeah, like I think it, I think. I don't want to spoil a piece I have coming Tuesday, but I think he, if he doesn't start too many times, he's going to be right there in the mix for six, man.
1: Yeah. I guess it depends how important Lou Williams is. Yeah, like the Lou Clippers Williams is probably. Win it. Yeah. <laughs> the Clippers, man, they should be really interesting, especially with injury trouble and things like that. The, the
2: uh, Already, the- let's get it going.
1: <laughs> the last question from Ben Grant. It seems like Nurse is underwhelmed by most of the new additions. What's your sense of how the returning players view the room? Does there seem to be a noticeable change in chemistry?
2: Um, that's hard to say because, like, I wasn't in Japan. Uh, we don't really, like, I think people under or overestimate sometimes the level of access we get at practices and stuff. Um, we don't get to watch the practices. We only like by the time we go in, like guys are just getting shots up or whatever. So I have only physically been at the open scrimmage and one of the four preseason games. Um, So I've only been in and uh, the open scrimmage didn't have locker room access. So I've only been in the locker room once this year. Uh, It's a little hard to tell that stuff. I think, you know, I think if you look for a positive sign, it's that Fred and Norm have really, really seem to be growing into leadership roles. Um, You know, obviously, Gasol and Lowry are around for that kind of thing too but Fred and Norm seem to be the ones who are tasked with being the tone setters on the work on the the work ethic and stuff um I probably need to be around a little bit more and like see that stuff up close uh to really say like I I thought you know Stanley Johnson for example I thought he took Nurse's words well in terms of how he came out approach-wise Friday Uh, I thought it was the hardest he'd, look, he'd worked on defense and the best he'd looked on defense in the preseason. But also, he, like, f- fumbled away everything on offense, so um, you know, sometimes it's not just effort. But I, I think it'll be okay, man. I think you know, there's probably an allowance to some degree for, like, guys are new, um, Terrence Davis is a rookie, some of the other guys are rookies, and then you know, no, guys don't come into new teams and figure it out right away all that often, so I think it'll be okay.
1: I have two more questions, and these aren't Twitter questions, these are just from from me, the first of which, are there two or three players league-wide that you perceive as really underrated and you'd like the Raptors to target? Um, like in trade? What, whatever, like whether it's pickup free agency in the future or in trade. Like, I know you keep an eye on a lot of guys around the league, so are there people that you seem to think are much better than they're perceived as that you think the Raptors could capitalize on in trying to go after?
2: Um there are a few like like if Taylor doesn't take one of the two way spots, I have a short list of guys that I, I wouldn't mind in there. Um unfortunately not a lot of them are point guards, uh which is what I think they'd need to do with that spot. Um around the league, I don't I don't really know. Like um he doesn't there he's not a fit with the Raptors. I guess maybe next year he could be a fit with the Raptors, but like Kem Birch is better than being a third string center, not to be like all Canadian about it, but he's better than being Orlando's third string center and he's on a pretty affordable deal. Um, This is a hard one off the top of my head, just like without looking at rosters and stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to think who else he comes up every year around trade deadline time. Uh, Again, not a a guy that it, it won't really make sense for the Raptors this year, but I wanted last year before the Gasol thing happened. Like, Etwan Moore with the Pelicans, I feel mm-hmm. like is is underrated and like on a reasonable contract and does the kind of things like it won't be Toronto, but if New Orleans falls out of the playoffs race and is trying to sell off pieces, like someone should really want Etwan Moore as like a tenth man or like offensive sub uh, for the play for the playoffs. Um, yeah, it's hard off the top of my head to.
1: Etwan can shoot it, man. Yeah, he and he's got that, really nice, he's got that
2: nice floater game. He's definitely going to drop yeah.
1: thirty in the opener. Well, OK, that was my next question, too. Is there are there any things that you're looking for specifically in the opener? Buddy, Nikhil
2: Alexander Walker. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he's um, he's awesome, by the way. Like, I know I just mentioned Ken Birch as a Canadian guy, but Nikhil's really good, I think. Like, I think he may have locked down the backup point guards spot or as much as they're going to have a backup. I guess their third guard is the better way to call it, because Lonzo yeah. and Drew are both kind of point guards um yeah i think he's good and fun i'm a huge drew holiday fan so that would be cool um and then obviously the rings and banner rising i think it's hilarious that um they're trying to get people not to post the replica rings that they're giving out on social media but people can get those <laughs> as early as like seven and the ring ceremony is not till eight like there's no way that's going an hour without everyone putting it on social media uh, yeah now it'll be I cool man rule. i I'm, it's yeah, funny. I'm really uh, sorry. I coughed there. Um, I'm really curious to see like what the what they. I mean, I know the fans will be good, but the reaction from the players. Um, I'm curious to see what that'll be like and just how emotional it'll be and yeah. I don't. I don't know about the Raptors being seven point favorites. Like, I feel like that you can't help but have an emotional hangover in a game like that.
1: Yeah, and whether it drives them one way or the other. Yeah. I'm sure seven, seven points probably doesn't account for which way it'll drive, either
2: Yeah, good or bad. I guess bad. the Zion thing, maybe. Zion just balances out the, the downside of the emotional thing, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's going to be a charged-up game. It would be kind of depressing, in an exciting way, if Zion had been healthy and he had gone, like, 13 of 15 from the field against <laughs> them. And just, it's like, oh my god.
2: Maybe here's what you do to avoid that, like, emotional hangover. Just start five guys who weren't there last year.
0: <laughs> Bring all the
2: regular guys off the bench. so They get a couple minutes to compose themselves and stuff. Terrence be- Davis can start a point guard in the opener, and yeah. yeah, Stanley Johnson, Rondé, all those guys.
1: That would be so funny. Um, oh, I also forgot to say it is is something I have to say every time I talk about Drew Holiday. But he is the best player in the league. I've been carrying this on for a year, and I have to say it every time it comes up. So that's a rule for me. And for Blake, before I let you go, um, is there anything you'd like to plug? You alluded to a piece coming out in a bit, uh, a couple days, about oh, Fred Van yeah, anything like crazy. that?
2: No, that's just like a predictions piece for the year. Um, you can follow all my stuff at The Athletic. Um, I'm on Twitter at Blake Murphy ODC, And then, yeah, all my works at The Athletic. Please subscribe. Just subscribe <laughs> off, of, off of one of my articles so I get all the credit, you know. Um, yeah, but... Usually I have discount codes kicking around, so just DM me.
1: Okay, I thought you were going to shout out a discount code here. But, yes, DM Blake.
2: Yeah, I don't know what the current one is. I'd have to look it up. Sorry.
1: It's, yeah. J.E. Skeets had one off the cuff, but I guess his his DMs probably aren't open.
2: Yeah, I think it's, like, theathletic.com slash we the six, like the number six. But I don't know if that one's active yet or if it's just for, like, the podcast rollouts and stuff. Mm. You could try it.
1: All right. You heard it, listener. And for me, I've been Samson Folk, your host. And uh Blake Wait, you've thinking, been?
2: Are you not him anymore?
1: No, the, the last twenty-eight seconds of the podcast, I, I am not someone else, and it's just a completely different thing. Possessed it's,
2: it's, by it's, the uh the soul of the tarantula.
1: Yeah, exactly. The nice front leaves, like it's out of here. And ironically, the one that says have a blessed day is the evil one.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just like dripping with sarcasm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Could you imagine? That would be so funny. All right, Um, yeah, and for me, I have been your host, Samson Folk. I am your host, Samson Folk, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Blake, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a treat. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, and I'll let you get back to your day. And listener, you as well, but not before I say whether you're listening to this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day, and goodbye.
0: Want to hear something amazing? When you're a pro, your reputation is built and proven over time. That's why the Home Depot carries Loctite PL Premium Max Construction Adhesive, the strongest on the market. It stays 100% solid after curing. It won't develop air pockets. And like your reputation, it holds up over time. Right now, get 12 or more for the bulk price of only $8.53 each. Loctite PL Premium Max at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Minimum purchase required, US only.